0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Kelly McGonigal to the show. Dr. McGonigal is a health psychologist, lecturer at Stanford University, and award-winning science writer. Her scientific research focuses on the mind-body connection and how to cultivate resilience and compassion. She's the author of several wonderful books, including the international bestseller, The Willpower Instinct, The Upside of Stress, and her newest book, The Joy of Movement. She's appeared on The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Anderson Cooper Show, and CNN's Vital Signs. Her 2013 TED Talk, How to Make Stress Your Friend, has been viewed over 20 million times, which is a crazy number. So doctor, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Yeah, it's really good to have you here today. Recently, we posted a couple of episodes related to loneliness. And interacting with your newest book really made me think about that topic again. So I'd like to kind of throw something around and basically get your, your thoughts on it, your response to it. People have become more isolated in a variety of ways than ever before, it seems. I think that you could call loneliness a legitimate epidemic that we're facing certainly in the United States and globally as well. There was a, I think, 2018 Cigna study or survey that was done that said that 50% of people feel alone always or a lot of the time. And probably not coincidentally, only about 50% of people felt that they daily had a meaningful human interaction with somebody else out in the real world. I can't imagine that those two numbers are correlated, but it's worth throwing out there. One of the interesting statements that you make inside your newest book, The Joy of Movement, is that exercise and movement in general can actually draw us into connection with other people. And exercise has many benefits. I'm a exercise advocate, but that's not necessarily the first one that I would have immediately thought of before interacting with your work. So I wanted to start there. What is it about movement that can help serve as an antidote experience for something like loneliness?
1: I'm so glad that you want to start here because I am obsessed with this finding that um, exercise primes us to connect with others. you know, all of my work from you know way back in the day when I first started doing research in psychology, this has been one of my core interests, how do people form social connections. And when I started writing this book and, and looking into the neuroscience of exercise, I was not expecting to find what I found, which is that exercise primes our brains and our bodies. To connect with other people probably more powerfully than than anything else you can find in the research. Everyone knows that exercise can make you feel good. There's an endorphin rush. And I think people have focused a lot on that sort of feel-better effect that if you go from not being active to being active, most people have more energy, they're in a better mood. But when you actually look at what's happening in the brain, what you see is that the neurochemicals that are released when we're physically active, anytime you get your heart rate up a little bit, you sustain that activity, It's not only endorphins that are being released, but it's also neurochemicals like endocannabinoids and possibly even oxytocin, which in combination seem to prime us to be more likely to trust others, find it easier to bond with others. And these neurochemicals specifically enhance the warm glow that we get when we cooperate, when we share in laughter, when we listen to other people tell stories, In fact, it seems like what people call the runner's high is basically the neurochemistry of cooperation and connection. And so when you go from being sedentary or inactive into a state of physical activity, you're literally putting yourself into this biochemical state that makes you less likely to withdraw from others, makes it easier to get over social anxiety, increases the pleasure that you get from any kind of play or or shared work or even just being present with other people. And this allows physical activity to do a lot of things. If you are being active by yourself and then you return to your family, you are in a neurochemical state that makes it easier for you to to be that great partner or parent. If you are being active with other people, it strengthens those bonds and that relationship. And even if you're active with strangers, it can build this tremendous community of support over time. So I thought that was fascinating That exercise is really not about making us feel good, but it's about making us this version of who humans need to be to survive, which is really, you know, our social selves.
2: I find that really interesting. One thing that Forrest does is West Coast Swing, and he does it at a really high level. (laughs) And so he teaches and does it professionally. And he also gets very involved in these events. I've I've seen these events. I don't know if you've seen them. They kind of blew my mind. Hundreds of people, up to maybe 1,000 people in a hotel ballroom of all levels of skill, cheering each other on, really supporting each other. It's mildly competitive, but it's massively cooperative and mutually celebratory. And there's something about people moving together. I wanted to see if you could talk more about. In addition to the ways that movement, let's say, primes us or sets us up to move into relationship, I've been reflecting since exploring your material, which I think is fantastic. What a fresh take on movement. And I want to get to, by the way, the second word in your title, the first substantive word, joy. Like that's such an interesting angle on all this. So anyway, where I'm going with this is what happens when people move together and even how can we in our imagination through an awareness of all those on our planet who are breathing too in this moment, walking also in this moment, moving with us together in this moment, In a large scale, as well as in a smaller scale, like in a hotel ballroom or a really, really small scale, just holding hands with someone as you walk down the street or going for a walk together. How can that sense of being with others while moving together also support the sense of connection and the reduction of loneliness?
1: Yeah. Well, so first of all, you're raising so many interesting questions. Let's name the phenomenon first. So you're talking about collective joy which is the particular euphoria and and sense of connection and even self-transcendence that people feel when they are moving in synchrony with other people. And you can see this when people are moving in ritual, when people are moving in dance, when people are moving together in an exercise class, or even when people are just walking in stride with one another. That when you move in synchrony with other people, it changes how you, literally how you perceive yourself. One neuroscientist called it the kinesthetics of togetherness that when you are moving with other people and you can see them, you can see other people's movement at the same time you feel the movement in your body, the areas of your brain that craft your sense of self, they begin to include everyone else you can see moving in synchrony with you in your sense of self. It's a literal visceral feeling that you are not this sort of individual, like confined by your own skin and bones, that you are part of something bigger than yourself. There is that sense of a collective, And again, it comes from moving in synchrony with others because of how we seem to be hardwired to perceive ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. Music, by the way, enhances this effect. So I'm sure it's part of what's happening with West Coast Swing. So that's collective joy. And again, it seems to be rooted in our our human need to actually connect with one another and transcend our sort of most self-focused or individualistic impulses. This is why you see things like dance and ritual and celebrations so often include synchronized movement so that we can come together and feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And you asked about how this can sort of go beyond when we're actually moving together. And it's an interesting thing because in my work on my research on meditation, the meditation that I often will encourage people to do is kind of an imagined collective joy of breathing together, you know, whether... We're doing a practice like imagining, you know, doing Tonglen, imagining other people in the world who maybe are in the same situation as you, a kind of a shared pain or struggle, and then imagine breathing for them, and then imagine breathing with them, and imagine that you can breathe in the kindness and compassion that they might be sending to you. And there is something about having experience in your body that I think makes it more possible to engage in these contemplative practices. It's less abstract. you know. If you go to... You could just go to a group fitness class and you're step clapping with other people. Or you're at a sporting event or a concert and you're clapping with other people. You know what it's like in your body to be in that state of self-transcendence and connection. So I think it makes it easier to access that sense of common humanity and not being alone in moments outside of that sort of peak version when you're in the Mm. full-blown collective Mm -hmm. joy.
2: One thing I like to do is imagine what people are doing right now in places that I've been to, like Tokyo or New York City or Bhutan, walking around. What are they doing right now? So I'll think about what time it is and how they're coming in and out of restaurants or bars or getting up in the morning. And there's that funny feeling that we're all in this together, even though the other person, let's say, is 10,000 miles away. So I wanted to ask you, your own personal connection with this material. If you could just speak to that a little bit, how you yourself have engaged the joy of movement and maybe how you find a sense of connection with others in part through moving together.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So a lot of people know me primarily as a psychologist and some of them are surprised like, oh, when did you get into this exercise thing? But I have been using movement for mental health support since I was probably seven or eight years old. It's like, it's the first practice that I found to help me. So, the origin story is I was born as a child with one of those sensitive temperaments where I was scared of everything, overwhelmed by everything, all those sort of psychosomatic problems, you know, with headaches and digestive problems. And I was just like the most anxious, sensitive, scared kid. And at some point, my mother started bringing home exercise videos from garage sales as if she was going to use them. Where my, my family is big on garage sales and you know thrift stores and that sort of thing. So she started bringing home these tapes as if she was going to do them. And she never did, but I did. We had a VCR. <laughs> and uh, in some of the early tapes, like Jazzercise, the original workout. And I had been a total klutz in gym class. I was always the slowest kid. I could not catch a ball. But there was something about moving in synchrony to music and following along to other people's bodies, that sense of moving in synchrony with what I could see on the TV that made me feel so good. It made me feel empowered. It made me feel graceful and beautiful, like I was a rockette. And I could sing along, (laughs) because you know in jazzercise, they're like, sing along to the words. It's just a totally different experience of being in my body. And very quickly, I developed what I think of as a healthy dependence. Somehow, that exercise helped me regulate my mood and my anxiety. By the time I was in graduate school at Stanford, I finally had a place to do it with other people. And my whole life, I'd been doing it basically at home in my little studio apartment or in my living room growing up. By the time I was in graduate school, I found that you could do this with other people. You could take group yoga classes and move and breathe as one. You could take group fitness classes and dance classes. I was so happy in those spaces that by the end of my first year of graduate school, I became certified to teach and began teaching dance and yoga and other fitness formats. And It's been the most important aspect of my career. So I've been doing this for 20 years now. And if you were to ask me what's like the most important contribution you've made as a psychologist, I would say it's teaching the group classes that I continue to teach above and beyond anything else. Even the interventions that I go out there and I encourage people to do from meditation, to volunteering, to adopting animals, all these things that are so good for your mental health. But um, yeah, I've become convinced that exercise and particularly moving in communities is the single best thing you can do for your mental health.
0: That's great. And a lot of what it feels like you're alluding to here is a absolutely major topic of the podcast in general. And I would say Rick's work in particular, which is activating a sense of agency, Mm. basically feeling like a hammer and not a nail. And one of the things that you said there is how growing up, you had a quote unquote sensitive temperament You talk about having anxiety or a sense of uncertainty in the body or in your surroundings and how exercise and movement for you really served as an antidote experience to that. So whether from your own individual experience or from the research more broadly, what is that interplay between movement and agency? And by moving more or moving better or moving with other people, can we actually use that as a resource to drum up a greater sense of agency and effectiveness inside of ourselves?
1: Yeah, I think I would love to answer this question with two of what I think of as the most different mechanisms. So we could we could talk about a thousand ways that movement does that. So let's talk about the two that I think of as being the most distinct at sort of the far poles of how movement creates resilience. One is super molecular at the level of, of things that are floating around in your bloodstream. And the other is really the stories that we tell about ourselves. And so let's start with the latter. I was I was so inspired and, and moved by the stories I heard people share about how some movement milestone or some physical activity changed what they felt was possible for themselves in their lives in ways that had real real meaning. People who were recovering from grief, recovering from major disabilities and accidents and, and traumatic brain injuries, people recovering from depression. The one one case that stands out to me, I don't know if you remember from the book, this this young woman who had a plan to take her own life. And she decided to go to the gym for one last workout, and she deadlifted. More than she had ever been able to lift before. And literally, in that moment of having her this, setting this personal record and sen- literally sensing her inner strength, she decided that she didn't want to die and that she wanted to see how strong she could become. And I think that that is, you know, that's an extreme example of what I heard from so many people that movement gives you direct feedback about who you are that often counters narratives you've heard from other people you know, growing up or from people in society who don't believe in you, who judge you, the stories that you tell yourself or the the voice of the inner critic, that you can literally sense yourself moving with, with speed and freedom or moving with grace and beauty or moving with power and strength and determination. And when you sense it in your own body and maybe you witness it in the mirror or other people see you as that version of yourself, and they, they reflect that back to you. You know, humans are meaning-making machines and physical experiences become metaphors. They become these stories that we can tell ourselves about how I thought I couldn't do this and I did. And that's astonishing. And what else am I capable of? So I think that's one aspect of how movement gives us agency and resilience is it just, it's a new story and you can't argue with it. Somebody took a picture of you Throwing an axe for whatever reason—I've heard from so many people lately about axe throwing—is this like (laughs) amazingly empowering activity? But like that's that's just proof, that's evidence, and it changes. Like the inner critic can't really argue when you're watching a video of yourself crossing the finish line, say, of a marathon. So that's one way. But the other way, so I said this like really distinct mechanism. This is this is as deep into our biology as you can get. So the finding that I. I thought was most remarkable when I looked into the research is the recent discovery that our muscles act as endocrine organs. So you know, we know you've got endocrine organs that pump out hormones like your adrenal glands, your pituitary gland. But what we've only recently discovered is that your muscles also secrete proteins and chemicals into your bloodstream that have an effect on every system of your body, especially the brain. And the only way to get access to these really healthy and helpful chemicals is by contracting your muscles. So imagine that. You've got this like pharmacy in your muscles. Your muscles are literally manufacturing molecules that when you contract them, when you walk, when you run, when you swim, when you dance, when you lift weights, any kind of exercise, your muscles start pumping these chemicals out into your bloodstream that can make your brain resilient to stress. That can possibly even cure treatment resistant depression. And there are these amazing studies, both with uh, non human animals as well as with humans, looking at how exercise changes, again, what's happening in the chemistry of your blood, how it passes the blood brain barrier. And these molecules can act as an antidepressant, can help your brain learn from experience, can increase motivation, can help you recover from trauma. And one of the first papers that I found that was writing about these molecules called them hope molecules because of the research showing how the molecules that are secreted by your muscles when you exercise help you recover from trauma and depression that literally create that sense of hope. And like this is phenomenal. This is bypassing any story you might tell yourself about lifting weights or crossing a finish line. This is literally the biology of being active is making your brain more resilient to stress because that's how humans thrive.
0: Yeah, there are Great points here. And it's really interesting and honestly fascinating stuff for me as somebody who's very engaged with movement in my own life, as Rick alluded to earlier. One of the things that I have seen inside of that engagement and so interesting that here we're talking about the kind of battle between the, the inner critic and the sort of more quote unquote absolute benefits of movement and exercise and the ways that it's challenging for that inner critic to sort of go to war with either A, what we actually have accomplished in the real world that you can see in a picture or capture in a video, or B, what's happening biochemically inside of us that is sort of supporting our good instincts as opposed to our negative inner critic. And at the same time, certainly as somebody who's taught a fair few dance classes or been in the gym a couple of times and talked to my friends about it, man, at the beginning of those processes, there can be a lot of self-recrimination, whether it's discomfort with the idea of walking into a gym or somebody in a dance class who gets down on themselves because they've tried to do it four times and they just can't do it. I think that there are a lot of sort of cultural narratives that we have around this, around the idea of going to the gym is really hard and it's really challenging to be consistent in your fitness practice or whatever it is. And I'm sort of trying to wind my way to an actual question here, but it's really, I suppose, more of a reflection on this, uh, on this battle between these two warring things. And I would just love your take on that.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's separate two things. Mm-hmm. One is... Is it hard to go to the gym or be active? Sure. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It can be challenging to find the time to prioritize it. If you are doing, if you are doing really interesting things with your body, you're going to face some physical difficulties. That's how we become stronger, faster. That's how we achieve mastery and improvement. So, you know, I'm definitely not the person sometimes people who are trying to like sell people and exercise are like, you only need to spend 90 seconds and you can lie down <laughs> while you do it and you know you don't have to get your heart rate up one of the we could have a whole separate conversation about how intensity and endurance amplifies pretty much every benefit of movement so the more you do and the harder it is often at every level from those hope molecules i mentioned to how you sense yourself to even the neurochemistry of connection you know the more you get your heart rate up the stronger the effect of collective joy. So almost every positive effect of movement can be enhanced by doing things that are hard. It can feel like a barrier, but people should know that it also is the path. So, but putting that aside, let's talk about the thing that actually really does drive me crazy, which is our cultural conversation about movement. I mean, not only do we have the human instincts to judge ourselves all the time and to find it difficult to go into a new environment where we don't know people or to try a new activity where we haven't mastered it yet. There's all of that. But when we talk about movement in our culture specifically, it's so tied to stigma and shame and body judgment that many people are actually entering the arena in a mindset that uh, that just reinforces suffering. So people assume the point of movement is to burn calories so you can lose weight, or build muscle so that your body is more acceptable to other people. I mean, people come in with motivations that the motivation itself produces suffering. And then you, you have that interaction with, maybe it is difficult the first time you try a new movement form. Or you're with strangers and you start to wonder if they're judging your body. So there are a lot of things where when you enter movement with that mindset that's so dominant in our society, it can really get in the way of experiencing the intrinsic joys of movement. So you know, one thing you might have noticed in the book is I don't mention weight loss or calories once. And that was not an accident. If people want to experience the biggest benefits of movement, whether it's the fact that it's such a powerful antidepressant. Or such an amazing social glue to help us bond with others. The way it produces hope, the way it increases self-confidence, the way it contributes to our joy and meaning, all of that. You have to abandon the idea that the point of exercise is to improve some part of your body that you or others find unacceptable. That cannot be the mindset with which you enter movement. And whether or not it changes your body, I would argue... That even if even if movement had no benefits for physical health, which of course is not true, but even if that were true, the effects on psychological health and belonging are so powerful that you wouldn't even need the physical health benefits to make this one of the most the best uses of your time.
2: Given the benefits, I find myself just wondering why do so many of us, me included, flame out? In other words, I think back on the gyms I've belonged to and, you know, I probably four or five of them. I paid for the membership and petered out. Yeah. And also I'm someone who really recognizes the value of movement. My own background, uh, which you may know a little teeny bit. I was really young going through school, skinny, anxious kid, picked last for sports teams, no sense of myself. Then here's my story. I, at age 11, maybe joined the Boy Scouts in our very first camp out. We went to Joshua Tree National Monument in California. There's a very specific place we went to. And I walked away from the campground and started clambering all over these huge rock formations. And something broke through for me, much as you've talked about yourself. I had a sense of boldness and capability as a scruffy animal moving over the rocks. None of my... Alpha comrades who scared me were willing to do what I was doing. And it was like a total, really a total process of self-discovery. And I've actually been back to Joshua Tree several dozen times probably since then. So I'm someone who knows about this. And yet also, I'll start a program and I'll just kind of peter out. I see other people, they sort of peter out. They know it's good and they just don't stick with it. So what's up with that? And given your expertise, what can we do about that?
1: Yeah, so a couple of reasons. So one we've already talked about is often the context and the motivation. And anytime you pair an activity with self judgment or fear of being judged and shamed by others, or or the often the reality that you can enter some many contexts for physical movement where you will be getting that message amplified back at you. I mean, going to a a fitness class and have people talk about this is the movement you need to do in order to get rid of that gut or whatever. You know, I don't need to hear. So there's a, there's that. And that will make anyone sort of lose the joy that's inherent to movement. Another reason is that, so we know that being physically active changes the brain to make you like it more and enjoy it more and want it and and need it, but that takes time. So if you're somebody who hasn't been active in a while, maybe you were active you know a decade ago, but your brain has sort of forgotten, <laughs> it seems to take about six weeks on average for the reward system of the brain to be reshaped Mm -hmm. by regular physical activity. And it's why people who are really hooked, like people like me, if I've been consistently active for decades, I don't really remember what it was like to kind of like that sense of, I don't like this. I hate every minute of it. It's hard because the brain actually changes in structure and in function to make movement more rewarding and also to sensitize you to other joys in life as well. That's one of the main neurological effects of regular activity is, you know, food tastes better and sunsets are more beautiful and laughter, you know, funny things are funnier. But like I said, it takes about 6 weeks on average for that to kick in. So if you can't get through that first 6 weeks, you could start and stop over and over and never understand what it's like to have a brain that has learned to love movement and really reward you for it. So sometimes it's about getting people to stick with it and understand that you know, what you feel in your first few workouts is not what you will feel in your body and in your brain. It's like, we know that our muscles adapt. So people know that, that if they lift weights for six weeks, they will have different muscles at the end of it. I think people don't understand you also have a different brain at the end of it, that just like your muscles find it easier to to lift weights and actually it feels good. Even if it felt horrible when you started... you have a brain that will enjoy it, find it easier, find it more pleasurable. So that's part of it. You have to find a way to get through that. But I think the thing that will help people do that is it's really important to find an activity that is linked to other joys. It's not that hard to do, but it is harder than, say, maybe taking the first opportunity to be active. So if the classic example of somebody who wants to, to exercise more is to like you know bring their phone to a treadmill and scroll through social media while they walk on the treadmill this is not the most intrinsically satisfying form of movement you mentioned you know going out into the wilderness and climbing and experiencing yourself as wild i always tell people what's the video if somebody sent you a, a video of a movement what's the the video you would slow down and watch and be like wow that's incredible like is it somebody pole vaulting is it somebody pole dancing and the artistry and athleticism of that? Is it a beautiful yoga pose? Is it people struggling to cross the finish line at a 5K or a half marathon? What's the thing where, when you watch it, you're like, that's interesting, that's incredible? And find a version of that movement that works for your body and that is accessible to you in your community. And that is going to be a completely different experience than looking for the fastest way to do a workout. And, you know, some combination of that. And maybe even like do it with people you love since now we know movement's going to help you connect with others. Find a relationship you want to strengthen and find that extra social support. And that can make it easier as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice, particularly at the end there. A lot of what I've seen in my own life in whether it's my own physical practices or just in the dance community generally or whatever it might be, is the extent to which those social bonds do get strengthened by doing things together with somebody else, whether it's about having a workout buddy or a dance class buddy or whatever else you're getting yourself up to. And I think it's awfully convenient here and probably not a coincidence that part of what we're talking about is willpower. And that's been a major focus of other areas of your work. You're talking here about really setting the stage for success, moving into something. But even if you set the stage well, even if you engage with a topic that you enjoy, even if you do it with somebody you love, there are probably going to be moments where it's just a lot easier to stay in bed or just a lot easier to do whatever the negative activity is rather than engaging with your movement practice. So in those moments, those like hard times or maybe creating the circumstances so those moments don't come up so often, what have you seen from the research or your own experience that's really helped people out?
1: Yeah. So it's it's worth pointing out. So talking about willpower, I define it as the ability to do what matters most to you,
0: mm.
1: even when it's difficult or some part of you doesn't want to. So one of the first things that can really support any sort of behavior change is getting clear on what matters most yeah, to you. absolutely. And if it doesn't matter most to you, like I'm not here to control what you eat, buy, do, say... This is about what matters to you. So whether it's movement or any other sort of behavior change, you need to be crystal clear that you believe that committing to this is going to have a positive effect on your well-being, your relationships, your ability to contribute to the world will relieve suffering in your life in some meaningful way. And so that clarity is actually the most important thing. Whether you're setting a New Year's resolution to exercise more, what do you believe is the best possible? thing you will experience by making that commitment. And does it really matter to you? And there it may be that it doesn't, that that is not the most important thing. And to be really clear about what that value is, research shows that when you're trying to make a behavior change, even a one-time reflection on that. So if you were to think, the reason I say I'm going to go for a walk outdoors three times a week is because i believe it will contribute to my energy levels which is really important for me being able to balance right now being a caregiver and my job which i love like that and i really believe i need to, to find a way to sustain my own energy so i can do both at the same time like that's what your value is you spend a few minutes reflecting on it research shows that that actually increases your willingness to do that behavior when it's inconvenient. It makes you more likely to remember what your goal is rather than get distracted by it and supports that behavior change over time. So I think that's the most important thing. And then in those moments where you feel that other part of you rising, the part of you who is stressed out or exhausted or being pulled by a different priority, that you recognize it as a choice point and you give yourself permission to do anything that reinforces your value, even if it's not the full-blown thing that you hope to commit to.
2: So you bring it back to the value. That's really cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's like maybe you thought you were going to go for a long walk outdoors three times a week and you discover there's a choice point and you can't figure out how to make it work that day. You don't say to yourself, so I guess my goal was wrong, or I guess I'm giving up on this. You say, well, what was that thing? I wanted to enhance my energy so that I could do these two things that are that are important to me. Could I right now stand up and do a yoga stretch, put on one song that I love? Do I have three minutes to move my body? And if I don't even have that, can I put my hand on my heart and say, you know what, in this moment, I, I didn't find a way to make it work, but I'm not giving up on this goal. I'm not giving up on myself. And to practice self-compassion. And again, what the research shows is that When you start recognizing these choice points, whether or not you succeed, if you are bringing attention to them with mindfulness and self-compassion, you are so much more likely to find a way to make it work eventually. And this is often a big experiment. When you say, I'm going to change something that is actually difficult and important very few people guess correctly how that 's going to unfold the first time it's a it 's a process of figuring out how is this going to work in my life, what do I need to do? what support do I need to get? what information do I need, and to find a way to be kind to yourself through the parts of that process that can feel like failure
2: it 's interesting so a, a two parter here you know part one. One of the things that I so truly appreciate about your work, Kelly, is this combination of intellect, research, solid science, really practical and heart and the magic ingredient moxie. There's something very bold about what you do. And thinking back in your own discussion you know, of your own history about what you've done and and in my own background, you know, I've done a ton of rock climbing, kind of be rooted in that breakthrough for me when I was about 11 years old, which was a breakthrough of self-concept, just to totally shifted my sense of who I am. So my point about all this is that even as movement and exercise in particular are so valuable for people, in part because they help people access these ways of being, like Moxie, that are really important, it's also true that many people are afraid of experiencing those ways of being, or expressing those ways of being, or being seen, being, for example, big, bold, aggressive, powerful.
1: Take up space. Take is up it space. is such a theme and movement, yes. Yeah,
2: including, hello, to the extent it's relevant around gender socialization for women to be big yeah. and full. And so almost in proportion to how valuable movement can be, it can stir up fears uh, that are related to the benefits of it. And I just wondered what you're thinking is about how people can work with those internal inhibitions, maybe related to movement and being big and taking up space. And for example, and how people can kind of be mindful of them and then work through them.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. So A lot of people do feel some discomfort when they first start to sense a different aspect of themselves through movement. For some people, it's about being powerful and taking up space. For some people, it's about expressing their sensuality. For some people, it's even the sense that taking the time to do this is selfish. That if I'm choosing to spend time in movement, I'm not doing something else that is for my family or for my work. And I think that that often you know bringing it back to direct experience how you feel and then bringing your focus to something bigger than yourself to community you know I often think that a lot of the stories that I write about in the book are about communities of movement where there's an aspect of celebration and witnessing other people and encouraging other people i think that when we feel discomfort in ourselves sometimes it's much self focus. And if you take the focus off yourself and you say, look around, you know, so I teach a dance class, for example, where most of the women are over the age of 70. And you could imagine being self conscious in that class and we're dancing in, in all sorts of ways and different styles and feeling. If you were to look at what was happening in that class and to watch the women move with grace and then the fierceness when we're punching and the the sexiness when we're dancing to Lizzo, it's so extraordinary to watch because it's human and it's real that my sense is people lose their inhibitions because they're like, wow, look at that woman. And the same thing happens in places like CrossFit for when you're watching somebody struggle to cross the finish line and they're out of breath and they're slowing down. And you don't think in that moment, wow, that's pathetic. You think, wow, that's incredible. So it's one of the reasons why I encourage people to find a community where they they feel like they either belong or they could belong, they feel welcomed. And then to spend time really celebrating other people's successes, admiring other people's bodies and movement qualities. It's similar to, I think, when we're trying to cultivate self-compassion. And I always tell people, this is not like a do-it-yourself, do-it-by-yourself project. One of the things that really unlocks self-compassion is the sense of common humanity. And and looking at you know strangers and saying, just like me, this person wants to be happy, but also knows what it's like to be angry or lonely. That being able to celebrate other people's humanity and every aspect of themselves through movement will really help people overcome their own inhibitions. It's uh, you know, it's like it's like the circle of compassion. It all comes back to self and other.
2: That's great. I want to ask you two questions, if I could. So one is I'm thinking about movement in a much broader way now through talking with you. And in addition to those sort of massed forms of movement where someone will do a workout, do a run, do a class, okay, fine. We're still moving throughout the entire day, as you well know, right? We're breathing, we're shifting. You're shifting in your chair. I'm I know. I just in moved chair. into
1: like a, a different yoga pose in my chair. Yeah, <laughs> the so, leg was on
0: top.
2: So during the, I don't know, ninety percent of a person's day, even someone who's doing structured, intense, super duper movement, ten percent of the time. During the other 90% of the time, including rolling out of bed in the morning or something like that, or just working and, you know, keyboarding, talking with other people, how can people bring into those uh, more everyday movements, walking down the street to get your coffee, yes. whatnot, uh, how can people bring in the enthusiasm, the wisdom, the moxie you're talking about here about, you know, intensive movement into that other 90%. Oh
1: my gosh. So I have, I have some ideas, some will be immediately rejected by people listening as being ridiculous.
2: (laughs) They're probably good ones then.
1: While you were saying it, I was thinking about how, like sometimes I will crawl into the kitchen, you know, get off the sofa and crawl into the kitchen like I'm an animal. Or I will, you know, hear a song that, you know, a car driving by and I'm on the sidewalk and I will dance for 10 seconds. If I have to move a heavy box, I won't just sort of, you know, think about it haphazardly and be like, ah, shove it. Be like, I'm lifting something heavy now. Squat,
0: <laughs> strength,
1: <laughs> power. But that there are everyday movement has these different qualities to it that you can, for somebody who loves the idea of an elegant port de bras in ballet, the way you stretch your arm and you, you look in the direction that you're reaching. Why could you not do that? When you open the kitchen cabinet and you reach out for the can of beans and uh-huh. look at it and you draw. I mean, once you have a movement practice that you love, you will discover that your body is capable of all different qualities of movement in everyday life. So, that's the, I, I feel like that is probably a stretch for some people, but I gotta tell you, the people in my life that I'm around, we play in that way. And we are, we're like free in our bodies. And parents know how to do this with their kids. So just do it when your kids aren't around also. So that's one idea. Another is there's something called the feel better effect, which is that if you have been inactive, like sitting still, lying down for a period of time, and you move your body in any way that gets your heart rate up just a tiny bit, that gets your joints moving, that requires you to breathe a little bit more, which is like almost anything that you can imagine doing it tends to immediately shift people into a state of having more energy and being more optimistic. It's a really funny, precise psychological effect. I think of it as, I call it embodied optimism. That when you go from being inactive to active, you have more hope, you feel more confidence, you feel better equipped to handle the challenges in your life, you feel like you have the energy to do it. And no matter where you start, you could start being sort of bored, depressed, anxious... Any sort of movement seems to move you in that direction of having more energy and a more positive mindset. So you can choose to do that anytime you need a reset. When you find your thoughts spiraling in a negative direction and you realize that you've been sitting still for the last hour, get up and do something else. And you can choose these movement resets that are really powerful and doing them throughout the day. And it doesn't matter if you burn any calories. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It's literally an effect using your body to be more fully alive.
0: That's a great reflection and a you know really awesome piece of advice that now, of course, I'm going to be thinking about when I leave this interview and I go to make my lunch about how <laughs> am I chopping the carrots or whatever it is that I'm doing. So, um, and also- and addition- it's a, Wait, can we yeah, just say, about, this
1: is not a joke.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree. It
1: sounds so ridiculous, but I I recently started giving talks on the topic of this book and I will bring people up on stage and ask them to do certain movements for like 20 seconds and say how do you feel and it doesn't matter who they are if you have them do a certain movement you know i had these ceos these male ceos i had them literally do a ballet port de bras and they were like i feel beautiful i feel graceful i had them imagine picking up battle ropes and just swinging back just in your imagination you're not and people feel powerful and determined so it seems silly but we know Again, if you spend any time with children, you know the power of imagination and you know the power of using your body to produce specific states of mind. And we should never lose that capacity.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And speaking of children, child self, whatever it might be, there's one question that we also ask everyone who shows up on the podcast. And I'm really curious as to your response to it, because so much of what you've talked about here is the transition that you've made. If you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to that younger version of yourself, I'm imagining you at 8 to 12 years old, what would you want to tell that person?
1: I would say to that girl, you have an incredible intuition and you can trust it, which I essentially have. And that has been, I think everything good in my life has come from being willing to listen to This I I feel like I've been blessed with the ability to sense when I should move in a certain direction, even when other people tell me it's a mistake. And I've always listened to that. It's a physical sensation around my heart. It feels like I'm being pulled forward. And I would tell her, trust your intuition. It's going to serve you. And get over yourself as soon as you can <laughs> like whenever <laughs> no there was a there advice. was a, a moment when i graduated it was the summer after i graduated college and i had this really clear insight that if i if i actually wanted to help people which i i mean i did my whole life i remember this thought you need to get over your own stuff like you need to make that happen because your ability to help other people is going to require you to be strong and be resilient And so whatever you need to do to deal with your own stuff, like do it, because that is going to be what's required to to move into this next step. So
0: That's a really wonderful reflection. And Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time today to do this.
1: Oh, thank you for this conversation.
0: Yeah, it was really wonderful and also really personally useful. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. The conversation was focused on the various ways that movement of all kinds can have a positive impact on our lives, and particularly how movement can draw us into connection and relationship with other people, and even serve as an antidote to the experiences of loneliness. Dr. McGonigal shared some of the research on just how movement can draw us into greater connection, and some of the fascinating ways in which our biology is activated by movement. One of the first things that we talked about was how movement can be a source of agency in our lives. And how many people who have maybe a anxious or uncertain or more sensitive temperament, myself included, can be really aided by developing a strong movement practice. Rick talked about how movement can be a way into our common humanity, an idea that Dr. McGonigal strongly supported. And some of the ways that everyday movement, even little things like grabbing a can from a counter, can help us activate both that sense of connection and that empowerment inside of ourselves. We spent some time talking about the challenges that can be presented by society around movement practices, and also the ways in which our inner critic can get in the way of establishing a strong movement practice. And Dr. McGonigal really offered some great suggestions for both of those things. Operating at two levels, the first level is how to sort of set the scene to maximize your success with adopting any kind of new movement practice. And the second was what to do when things get tough. One of the great pieces of advice that she offered was to find things that maybe aren't the exact thing that you're struggling to do in that moment, but that activate the same sense of purpose and goal that your movement practice furthers. So that way you don't have to think about it like falling off the wagon and can instead maybe think of it like taking maybe a little detour for a moment. Throughout, Dr. McGonigal offered a lot of practical advice and I'd like to take sort of a personal moment to say here that various forms of positive movement practice, for me dancing in particular, have had an enormously positive impact on my life, and I would strongly co-sign everything that she offers in this episode. I think that if you want to make a big, meaningful change in your life in the new year, one of the best ways to do it is through adopting a consistent movement practice. Again, the book is The Joy of Movement. If you're interested in learning more about the book, or maybe even purchasing a copy, we've included a link to it in the description of today's episode. I'd also like to remind you about Rick's Foundations of Wellbeing online program. The program is still accepting registration. And if you would like to learn more about that, I've also included a link to it in the description of today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to like it, subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. It's really one of the best ways to help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.